Good morning. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. My name is Mike Petro, and I'll be reading from Luke 1, verses 5 through 7. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth, Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, church, I want to begin with a little bit of uh, marriage confessional this morning. Uh, I'm going to get maybe a little bit in trouble. Hannah doesn't know that I'm going to mention, mention this. So uh, if you have an extra room in your home, you know, let me, <laughs> let me know. No. So there's been something that's been a part of our marriage from the beginning that's been a bit of a struggle, a bit of a, bit of a conflict. There are um, times in life where something happens and you just have the perfect, like, right thing to say in response to the situation that you know is going to get a laugh or the other person's going to look at you and be like, oh yeah, totally, I get it, I get it. And typically something happens and uh, you want to like quote a line from a movie in that, in that moment, right? And when you quote that line from the movie, they're like, totally, yep, that's exactly what that is. Well, okay, so often in our marriage over the last 21 years, there have been these situations where I've desperately wanted to say something. And specifically, there have been these moments where a quote from the Star Wars franchise would be perfect in that, in that moment. But every time that moment happens with my wife, and I look at her, and I'm like, no, I am your father. I can't say those things, right? I can't, I can't make the quote, and the reason is my wife has never seen a Star Wars movie, a Star Wars TV show, a Star Wars commercial. She has ideas of what the Star Wars movies, and I think I've, I've talked about this maybe in public before, but, but so there's always those moments and, you know, where I'm like, if my brothers were here or, you know, any other human being were here, they would totally get this. And I'd be like, they'd be laughing and we'd, we'd be enjoying this moment together, but instead our joy is thwarted because she's never seen this. No. But have you ever had something like that? Like, why can't I say that thing in that moment, right? She hasn't seen the movie, so she has no context for the line that I am giving. When I have done it in the past, right, and I've forgotten that she's never seen these movies that have been part of culture for over 40 years, you know, I, <laughs> there's that moment where she just kind of looks at me blankly, and I'm like, oh, right, you know. Now, even with, like, you know, more movies coming out, like, if, if that's, like, something's even on TV, I feel like she's at this point where she just, like, walks out of a room because she's just like, I don't, I've come this far. Why? Why do that? So, so what's the deal there? It's the context, right? She does not have the context for the line that I'm saying. So she totally misses the meaning. It doesn't mean anything to, to her. And understanding the context for something will often significantly inform our interpretation of something that somebody is saying. And, and I bring our attention to that because today we are continuing our introduction to our study in the Gospel of, of Luke. And before we begin this, this journey in its fullness, I, I felt the need to begin to kind of set the context for us about the life of Jesus Christ because the life of Jesus Christ takes place in a specific 
context, in a specific time, in a specific place. And if you don't understand that context, then some of the things that we're going to hear Jesus say, some of the things that we're going to hear Jesus do, they won't always connect with us. Now, I'm going to do my best when we come to certain moments to be able to set additional context, but I think broadly speaking, as we study this book, it's, it's good for us to, to have a broad understanding of the context of Luke, where it fits historically in time and space, and then today as well, some of the, some of the larger theological context for the book. And so last week, what did we do? Well, we started in verse 1, and we went through verse 4. And so I'm just going to read it for you just real quickly here. Because this is known as the prologue. The, the Gospel of Luke, unlike uh, the other Gospels, really begins with a very kind of a formal introduction. It says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Before the gospel begins and begins recording for us the life of Jesus, the author here kind of sets the context for it. We, we are introduced to the fact that there is a human author for this book. Now in your Bibles, it says the gospel according to who? Luke, but the reality is the name Luke is never mentioned in this gospel, and so we talked about how do we actually know it was written by Luke, because there is a me in verse 3. You see it there, right? It, it says that, I, that, he says, you know, it seemed good to me to write these things, and so we talked about the me in verse 3 is Luke. We know that for two reasons. One, from the very early church, it was accepted that Luke was, that is Luke the companion of, of Paul, the physician, he was the one who wrote this book. It was almost undeniable that both those who were orthodox and even heretics of the early church all affirmed Luke as the author of this. And they did that because when you actually look at the rest of the New Testament, it gives evidence to this book being written by Luke. Luke, as I said last week, is volume one of a two-volume set. What's the other book that was written by Luke? Does it, Acts, the book of Acts. So these two books go together. They both have the same author. And when you read the book of Acts, something interesting happens in that book that helps us know that Luke was the author of this book. You see, in Acts chapter 16, the author of Acts has been recording the history of the early church and what was happening with the apostles. But in Acts 16, it shifts no longer is the person who's writing about the events just simply a, a person who is recording what happened in the past, but the author actually says, we did this and we did that, rather than they did this and they did that. And why is that the case? Because the person that's writing Acts was a part of the events that were taking place from Acts 16 on. And what were the events that were taking place from Acts 16 on? Well, they were Paul's missionary journeys. And, and so the author of Acts and the author of Luke was somebody who traveled with Paul and and as he's traveling, the author of Acts records for us all these companions, all these people who were traveling with Paul and that they were encountering. And when you compare Paul's writings and all the people that he said were tra was traveling with him and were companions with him on his journeys, those two lists match up. But there's one list, there's one name that's missing in the list of companions in the book of Acts that we find in Paul's list. And the person that's missing is none other than who? It's Luke. It's Luke. So Paul mentions that Luke was with him, but when Luke's writing Acts, he doesn't mention his name because he doesn't need to. So, so Luke is the author of this book. And we said there are some things that are important to know about Luke. 
He's only mentioned three times in the New Testament. I left there for you those, those passages, Colossians 4.14, 2 Timothy 4.11, Philemon 24. And in those three passages, we learn a lot about Luke. We know he's a Gentile. That's going to be important for us because Jesus was, I hope this doesn't come as a surprise to you, he was a, a Jew, right? He was, he was not a Gentile. He was not a non-Jew. Jesus was a Jew, yet Luke is a Gentile. And so as he's hearing about the Jewish faith, it's not something that he grew up in. And so it's helpful for us that a Gentile is the author of this gospel because you and I are going to get some insights. Luke is going to keep some things out of it that would be confusing for us because we didn't grow up in that context. Not only was he a Gentile, we know he was a physician. And some people make a big deal about that. I don't make a big deal about that because physicians in Jesus' day were not that big of a deal. They weren't like they are today, people who are typically respected or who we view as having a, a very thorough education um, you had really good physicians in, in Jesus' day, and you had some bad physicians in Jesus' day. Um, and so he, he's just known that he is a physician, but that's wonderful because he was a loyal and faithful friend to Paul. He, he's somebody that was loyal and was, was faithful. Um, Paul says that he went with him on his missionary journeys. He cared for Paul, and as a physician, that was great because Paul had a lot of ailments. And so when you think about the character of Luke, the man who wrote this, this is a man who you can tell believed and received the gospel and actually impacted his life and impacted his friendships. But finally, and this is the most important thing about Luke, I think, is that Paul identifies him as a fellow minister, a fellow worker. He was a gospel minister. He was somebody that wasn't just a physician. He wasn't just a historian. He was somebody that heard the gospel and believed what Jesus said, that you should go into the world and make disciples. And so he traveled with Paul, not just recording history, but proclaiming the gospel, ministering to local churches. He took seriously the words of Jesus. So seriously, in fact, that we have what we have recorded here. That as he says, his purpose for writing this book, the purpose that he has is to make the life and work of Jesus Christ known so that you and I would have confidence in following him. He believes so much in Jesus that when he writes this letter to this man named Theophilus, he says, listen, I'm writing this to you so that you might have certainty about the things that you have heard. Luke knew that at the time that he wrote his gospel, there were other accounts of the life of Jesus. He most likely knew about Matthew and Mark's account. Both were most likely written before his. He knew that other apostles had, had been communicating what Jesus said and did. And he knows that Theophilus, this man that we don't know if he was a believer or an unbeliever, but he was somebody who was curious about Jesus Christ, had heard these things. And he says, listen, I want you to know it's true. I want you to know he was real. I want you to know that what you've heard about the miracles and the teaching and all of those things, they are true and they confirm Jesus to be who he said he was. And so why are we looking at this? Why are we taking the time to consider some of these things in the beginning? Because church, listen, when Luke writes his gospel and he quotes Jesus later in Luke 19, Jesus says, I came to seek and to save the what? Lost. Do you know that? Like that's what Jesus said. Jesus is coming in his pronouncement. What Luke believes to be true is that Jesus was the son of God come into the world to seek and to save the lost. And he's writing this account so that we church, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, it doesn't matter. He says, I want you to know and to have confidence. As a believer, it's important for you to know the words of Jesus, to know who Jesus was and what he did. Why? Because you're called to follow him. How can you follow somebody that you don't know? And if you're an unbeliever, he says, I want you to know and understand the words of Jesus. Why? Because he alone has the words of eternal life. 
And so we're coming to this book because we believe, and we're, we're trying to understand the context of this book because we believe Jesus to be who he said he was. But if we believe that he was who he said he was, do we really know him for who he, he is? So, so here's what we're gonna do today. Um, we looked at four verses last week. This week, we are going to look at one verse. Now, okay, now bear with me. We're going to cover 20 verses next week. But I want to just look with you at one verse here. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Because I want us to be drawn into, it's good to know who wrote the book and why. But it's really important for us, as I said, to understand the historical context for the life of Jesus. We know the purpose of this book, but what is the historical context that the life of of Jesus took place in? Because it matters, church. It matters. And my question is, how well do you know? When you think about Jesus, who do you picture Jesus to be? If you don't know the historical context, or as we're also going to look at the theological context, what happens with Christianity, especially today, is we make Jesus far too Western. We make Jesus like a pastor in Southern California. And he wasn't, he wasn't that. He ministered in a specific time and place. The other thing is, if you don't understand the historical and theological context of the life of Jesus, you make Jesus too individualistic. You make Jesus and what he did all about you. That Jesus came into the world to die and to save you here today. I'm not saying that he didn't come to do that, but Jesus and his ministry has a much broader scope and it has this, this greater purpose of which by God's grace we get to be a part of. But you lose all of that and you make Jesus far too personal, far too, too local if you don't understand that he came when he came and he came to where he came and he did what he did for specific reasons. And so to begin with that, we're going to look at our text this morning. We're going to look at the historical context, and it starts with this. It's amazing that Luke does what he does. Ready? One really big verse. And actually, we're just going to look at the first half to begin. It starts in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. Stop there. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. And this one little verse, God's word lays out for us, both when and where the life of Jesus takes place. I love this verse because as I said last week, when Luke writes his gospel, he writes it as history. He writes it as fact. He doesn't write it as fiction. From the very first words, right after the introduction, he says, I want you to understand that the life of Jesus takes place in a specific time, in a specific place. It's grounded in history. It's not myth. It's not fable. It's reality. And one of the things that we learn is, is where the life of Jesus takes place. Do you see it right there in the text? It says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, surprise, surprise, the life of Jesus, it takes place in Judea, the land of Israel. That's the where. That's the where the life of Jesus takes place. And, you know, for those of you who have been around the church, you're looking at me, you're like, oh, duh. All right, good for you. Good for you, okay? But here's what I found today. I don't make assumptions anymore when I'm talking to people about the life of Christ. I'm not, I'm not going to name names. Uh, I was going to refer to a certain generation, but I'm not going to do that. Um, that when I've had certain conversations, like, we take some of this for granted. A lot of people don't even know where Israel is on a map. So guess what I'm going to do? Let me show you here. All right, so here is a, here's a map of the ancient world. This is, this is the Roman Empire. I'm going to refer to this later. You see over there on the left of the screen that, that big blob of red, that's 
present-day Spain, anybody, you see Italy right there in the middle of the, the boot, and circled down there is the land of Israel. It's the land of Judah, the land of Judea, however you want to call it. This is where the life of Jesus took place. And here's why this, and knowing where it took place and, and that took place here is so important, because Israel back then, even today, it was a land bridge. It was a land bridge, okay? When you look at it, actually go back to the other map for a minute, because I want them to see this. When you look at the land of Judea, you can see that it was a land bridge. It serviced, if you wanted to get from Africa to Europe, you had to go through Israel. If you wanted to get from Africa to Asia, you had to go there. Vice versa, Europe down to Africa, Europe over to Asia. Israel, this small little swath on the Mediterranean was a place that was a crossroads for so many cultures, so much trade. It was the place that God had promised to establish his people. We'll talk about that later. But this is, this is where it's... It takes place. This is where the life of Jesus takes place. It was a culturally significant place in Jesus's day because of the travel routes that went through it. But here's something I want you to know about it. Um, geographically, uh, or I should, say, I should say, the topography of Israel, even the climate of Israel, it's very similar to ours in California. Do you know that? Like, it's not all that, that different from, from us today. Um, it's the weather when you go there. Um, it's very similar to, to here. Um, but because of where it's located, it's not located in the west. It's located in the east. And that's why I put there up on the screen. One of the takeaways is that it had a radically different culture than ours. You, you know that, right? Like, you know there's different cultures in the world. Um, not just today, but even, even back then. When we think about the life of Jesus and where it took place, it takes place in this Middle Eastern culture. And the reality is, is that the, the values and the things that they had back then, as it is still today, are vastly different. In Western culture, Western places, we place greater emphasis on personal freedom, independence, and individual rights. So places like America, that's what we do, right? It's like, that's what we're, we're about. We're about independence. We're, we're about freedom, individual rights. Middle Eastern cultures, both in Jesus' day and even today, they value loyalty to family, community. They value hospitality. It's like, we like hospitality, not like they do, okay? Not like they do. But it's not about what I want as the individual. It's about how can I better serve my family? How can I better serve my community? If you don't understand some of these cultural differences, when we're reading through the Gospel of Acts, you're going to hear references to things and references to family or references to cities, references to villages and references to certain relationships. And you're going to picture your relationship. You're going to picture your home. You're going to picture your family gathering. And that's going to be a disservice to you. It's going to be a disservice to you because how they interacted and what it was like relationally for them, it's not like our culture is. So you've got to suspend some of the things that we want to impose um, on Jesus' life if you don't understand where his life took place. But the text, as you see, it doesn't just simply tell us about where his life took place. It also says when. That was actually the first part of the verse, right? Did you see it? In the days of Herod, king of Judea. You know what Luke does here is so important for us, church, because it, it leads us into the when. It leads us into the when. It lets us know that the life of Jesus Christ began, or the story of Jesus begins somewhere around 4 BC. It starts somewhere around 4 BC. And you say, well, how do we know that the life of Jesus, the story of Jesus begins somewhere around 4 BC? It's because of the name of this man right here. There's only one person who went by this kind of exalted title, and his name was Herod the Great. There are lots of Herods mentioned in the New Testament. You'll find them there. We might even talk about some of them. 
And they were all his sons. But, but Herod the Great was the person who was reigning in Judea at that time. And we know that his life spanned from somewhere around 72 BC to, to 4 BC. That's as long as Herod the Great was, was in power. Now, his influence on Israel and Judea uh, before the life of Jesus and then even as Jesus is born and he lives, it was tremendous. There's some things I want you to know about Herod. He was a monumental figure that really set the, the context for the world in which Jesus lived and ministered. The first thing you need to know about this guy was that he was an Edomite. That means that he wasn't a Jew. Here he was. He had took, taken actually the title of the king of the Jews, but he was, an, he was an Edomite. He was somebody who wasn't Jewish. And you say, who are the Edomites? Well, thank you for asking. Let me tell you. So the Edomites were descendants of Esau and not Jacob. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Two of those sons were Esau and Jacob. And it's through the line of Jacob that you have the Jewish people. It's through the line of Esau that you have the Edomites. And so they were also living in the land. And so how does an Edomite become, quote unquote, king of the Jews? How does he rise to prominence? Well, again, let me tell you. So he has a father. And this father was very friendly with a man by the name of Julius Caesar. Do you remember any of your history? And Julius Caesar is expanding his territory. And in his war against Pompey, Herod's father was a very faithful soldier, actually helped to, to save Julius Caesar's life and, and win that war. And Julius Caesar thought, you know what? You're a good guy. You got my back. Uh, you're from this region, so uh, I'm going to make you governor of Judea. And so he makes Herod's father governor of Judea. And that didn't mean a, a ton back then. I mean, he was, he was given responsibilities, you know, in, in the land. It basically meant that Rome would support his rule over the region. And so Herod's father says, you know what, I got this son, he was 26 at the time, named Herod. He's like, I'm going to make him, uh, I'm going to make him the governor of that smaller region up in the north, the region of Galilee. And so Herod becomes the governor of, of Galilee, a place that will figure prominently in Jesus' life. Eventually, Herod's dad dies, and Herod actually has to flee. He's got to leave Judea because the Parthians are coming down from the north. They're starting to, to invade. There's a, there's a little picture of there. This works pr pretty well. And so they're coming down from, from the north. And so he goes back to Rome. And, and the Romans are like, you know, we liked your father. We liked you because when you were governor of Galilee, you took care of some of the crime that was happening up in that region. We're going to send you back down with a bit of a Roman army. And we're going to drive the Parthians out. And then you can take over as governor of Judea. And that's what he does. And so he goes down. He drives them out. And then he does something that's really smart for a king. The, the Romans are ultimately ruling the region, but we're like, you know, it's too much for us to have our own people doing all this. So we're going to give you responsibility over this region. You just got to pay taxes and, don't, and make sure that people don't cause any problems. And he says, great, got it. And so he uses all of his oratorical skills. He uses all of his administrative skills. And he starts to serve the people of Judea. And he does some really incredible things. He keeps crime at bay. When there was a famine in 25 BC, one of the things that Herod does, check this out. How would you like this person as a politician? He knows that the famine has come and the people have been paying taxes very, very faithfully. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to give you some of your taxes back. And so he does that once during the famine. He does that twice during the famine. 
Eventually, the famine is so, so bad, and he looks to take care of the poor that he melts down some of the gold within his own palace to buy food for the poor. Does that sound like, you know, making friends and influencing people? Yeah. So people, they, they like this guy at first. They like this guy at first. And so, so he's immensely powerful. He's got, he's got tremendous power because the people like him, and, he, and, he's, and he's influencing people in a good way. And then he does something that everybody absolutely loved. He rebuilt the Jewish temple. In Jerusalem, there was a temple during the time of King Solomon, one of the true kings of Israel. And he builds this temple in obedience to God as a place of worship and sacrifice. But then that temple during the exile eventually gets destroyed. People come back and they rebuild a temple. It's kind of just a a shadow of the former one. But then when Herod comes on the scene, he's like, I know how. I know know how I can impress the people. I'm going to build this temple. Now, he also spent a lot of money on himself. He's built these amazing palaces and the like. But he rebuilds the temple. And I want to show you here a picture. This is a comparison. On the left there, you see a picture of what Solomon's temple would have looked like in comparison to the temple that Herod built. Okay? When people saw Solomon's temple in the Old Testament, they wept for joy. And they thought, this is the splendor and the glory of Israel. Check out the size difference when Herod builds his temple. I mean, this would have been like, almost like one of the wonders of the world, the size and the scope of this thing. It was actually still under construction during the life of, of Jesus, long after Herod died. And so he builds his temple, and the people love him, but the problem with Herod is towards the end of his life, he became paranoid and cruel. He became paranoid and cruel. And so towards the end of his life, he did things like killing his mother-in-law, and then because his wife was upset with that, he killed his wife. And then he killed his brother-in-law and his brother. And then he killed some of his sons. And anybody that he thought was a threat to the throne, he just, he, he killed him. He's so paranoid that one of the most grotesque and horrible things that he does, it's recorded in Matthew's gospel, is after Jesus is born in the town of Bethlehem. And the wise men come to this Herod and they say, hey, there's a, we want to come and worship the one who's been born king of the Jews. He says, oh, there's a, there's a new king of the Jews. Tell me, where was he born that I might go and worship him? And they're like, well, he's born in Bethlehem. And so this is the Herod that then has every male child under the age of two killed in Bethlehem. So so towards, and this is toward right towards the end of his life. So he's paranoid and cruel. People go from really loving him to, to fearing him. And he knows that. And so right before he dies, guess what he does? He rounds up, he knows he's dying. He rounds up a bunch of Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, men and their wives, he throws them in prison and he tells his soldiers, on the day that I die, I want you to kill these people so that there will be mourning in Jerusalem during my death, even if it's not for me. I mean, quite the thinker, but a horrible man, right? And, And so... And so this is what's been going on. And so, so, so why do I, I bring all this to your attention? Eventually, after he dies, his kingdom gets divided amongst his three sons. And so we're going to learn about these guys through the gospel of John. His kingdom eventually gets, gets divided. But here's, here's the takeaways from this, some things I want you to consider. When you're reading the gospel of Luke, I want you to know the land of Israel, it appears prosperous. Okay, the land of Israel, it, it, it appears prosperous at this time. Don't think about Israel as a backwater nation at this time. That temple that I showed you was a shining example. There were Roman cities in Israel that were impressive in scope. They had amphitheaters. They had regular theaters. They they had Colosseum-type buildings. There, There were these really impressive cities because this guy had put together an impressive infrastructure. 
There are Roman roads that are going through, through Israel. There are, there are things and structures in place, so much so that we have evidence that during the time of Jesus, fish that were caught in the Sea of Galilee were actually shipped to Rome and were being eaten in Rome. Now, I don't know how safe those fish were back then. You know, I mean, they were salted. But what I'm saying is that this Herod had put together quite an impressive infrastructure. And so from the outside looking in, you're like, wow, check this place out. I mean, Herod's done some wonderful things. But if you're a Jew, here's the two points that I want you to know. Israel, the Jewish people are in the land of promise, but they are still under Roman occupation. So Israel was out in exile and then God brought them back into the land and they have their temple and they're able to worship God, but everywhere they look, they are reminded that God is not ruling over them. There's not a king of the Jews on the throne. There is a false king on on the throne and so they're still under subjugation. And so the people of God at this time and place in history, they're longing for deliverance. They're, they're, They're like, man, you know, things appear to be great. But every time I leave the temple, I'm reminded that we're not the ones in charge here. Someone else is ruling over us. I've often thought about the Israel, you know, the Israelite people at this time and place. Um, like I think about prisoners who used to be in Alcatraz. I don't know if you've ever been to Alcatraz. Um, I want to show you a picture of, this is San Francisco Bay. Uh, you're looking at, at the city. San Francisco's got a lovely uh, skyline. And one of the best views of San Francisco Bay is on this location, right where I'm actually standing. I, I took this picture, um, and it's on the island of Alcatraz. The, the only problem with this view is that to get that view, you're on the island of Alcatraz, and on the island of Alcatraz is what? It's a prison. It's, it's the prison of Alcatraz. Let's show a picture of, of that. That's, that's where the picture is being taken from, actually just right underneath that, that one tower. And you know, the story is told that you know, the men who were on Alcatraz and they're in prison, like they had one of the best views of San Francisco. I mean, you would look out, you could see the lights of San Francisco and they could say that on the weekends, the prisoners could actually hear the music being played. So out of all the places in San Francisco, if you wanted the best picture of the skyline, you could, you could get it from Alcatraz. The only problem was that you're in Alcatraz. <laughs> so you could look out and you could look at this thing that you could enjoy, but you can't enjoy it because you're in prison. The people of Israel were feeling the same way at the time of Jesus. Yeah, we're in the land. Yeah, things look to be great, but they're not what they should be. They're not what they should be. And they're not what they should be. And the only way that you can understand why they weren't what they should be is if you understand the redemptive context, the redemptive or the theological context that Jesus lives and ministers in. Have you ever wondered, if your child came to you, could you answer the question, why was Jesus born a Jew? Why was he born where he was born? In the time that he was born, is, was there a reason behind all of this? Is there a reason why in the days of Herod, king of Judea, that the when and where of Jesus' life is set in the historical context that it's set? Church, I want to now close by showing you absolutely yes. There's a very specific reason why Jesus was born where he was born. And we actually see it in the last part of the verse. Let me show you how we get there. It says in verse 5 these words, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, 
there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Avijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Luke doesn't begin his gospel with the story about the parents of Jesus. He doesn't begin his gospel with the the story of Jesus' birth. He doesn't begin his gospel with even a story specifically of Jesus. He begins his, his gospel with the story of these two individuals, a priest named Zechariah and his wife named Elizabeth. Next week, we're going to look at their story and the significance of their story in connection to Jesus. But what I want to show you is that God in his perfect plan begins Luke's gospel with this story of this man, man named Zechariah because he wants to set the theological context for us for Jesus' life. Do you know what the name Zechariah means? Uh, I'm going to tell it to you. The name Zechariah means Yahweh remembers. It means God remembers. When you understand Jesus and what he came to do, you understand why Luke draws our attention to this story and tells us of a priest by the name of Zechariah. You see, to say that God remembers church, another way of saying that is that God does not forget. God does not forget. God has not forgotten his plan. Because church, does God forget things? Can God forget things? No. So when it says that God remembers, we're actually being told here that God has not forgotten his plans. You know, because I am a wonderful husband, um, sometimes, <laughs> hey, don't laugh, it's true, no. As a way to display how wonderful I am, I will go shopping to Costco on behalf of my wife. Husbands, if you want to make your wife's, you know, life better, go, go shopping, at least for Hannah. So, so I'll go shopping at, at Costco, and I'm not that wonderful because I still have to call her 20 times because Costco's always moving things in the store, and like she knows where they are. She doesn't, she's not there. Even the workers don't know sometimes. <gasps> Sorry. Anyway, so I'm going to Costco, and I go shopping, and sometimes when I get home, my wife does a great job. She gives me a list, and I follow the list, but she'll sometimes get home and say, did you what? Remember so-and-so, Right? Do you remember such and such? And, and the way that I display that I remembered such and such was not just telling her that, but what? Showing her. Here it is. Here it is. The theological context for the life of Jesus, it starts with this priest named Zechariah, and his name means God remembers. What, what Luke's gospel is preparing you and I to see is that God has not forgotten his plan. In fact, the entire story of the gospel of Luke is to reveal to you, is to show you God has not forgotten. He's not forgotten what he was planning to do, but how do we know what he was planning to do? Has God actually had a plan throughout human history? And the answer to that is 100% yes. Look with me at Galatians chapter 4. When you go to Paul's words, he actually tells us something that, that connects us to, to this gospel in a profound way. In Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 4, listen to what the apostle Paul says. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son Born of a woman, born what? Under the law. Stop right there. 
When the fullness of time had come, what's, what's Paul saying? Well, how's he connecting us to Luke? Listen, when you're reading the gospel of Luke, what you're reading is God remembers. God has had a plan, church. The life of Jesus takes place in a certain time and place in history because when the fullness of time had come, that means when God was, was moving all things to a certain point, God sent forth his son. Jesus came into human history. The things that we're going to read recorded in Luke's gospel, they come in the, the theological context of a plan that God has always had. God was moving towards something, and Jesus is the fulfillment of that plan. Are you tracking with me? You do not read the gospel of Luke divorced from this. The life of Jesus took place at a specific time and place in history because Jesus was the fulfillment of God's plan. But church, what was that plan? Remember how I told you just moments ago that Israel, they're in the land of promise, they have a temple, but things are not as they were supposed to be. And there's a reason why things weren't as they were supposed to be, because Israel had failed to be obedient to the Lord and to live the way that God had called them to. You see, Paul goes on in Galatians chapter 4 and 5 to tell us something. If you see further on in the text, it says here in verse 5 this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as what? Sons. What was the plan and what was the purpose of God? Look at, I'm gonna give you the last point in your notes, but I know you all, and you fill that in and then you close your Bibles. Don't do it, okay? Here's the, here's the last point. What is God's plan? What was, what was his purpose? What is he trying to fulfill? To bring about the redemption of humanity. This is the plan that God is bringing to fruition, the thing that God has not forgotten, but is going to reveal in Luke's gospel is that Jesus Christ is the one who fulfills the plan of God to redeem humanity. Now, if you've been around the church any period of time, you're like, Dave, I already know that. Yeah, you didn't even, I didn't even have to listen to, to this message. But churches, I like to say, just because something is familiar doesn't mean it's not spectacular. And this truth right here, the life of Jesus coming to redeem is so significant to when you woke up this morning and when you go to bed tonight and when you wake up tomorrow. To really understand this plan and what it means. See, I wonder how well you actually know the plan of redemption. How well you understand the Jewish people's place in that redemption plan. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run through this very quick because I'm going to come through it again when we look at the genealogy in Luke's gospel. But do you know how spectacular God's plan is of redemption? First, do you know what it means to redeem something? To redeem something is to take something that was, was once yours and to literally to buy it back, to restore it to the way that it was meant to be. So if God's plan is anything, when we say that God's plan is the redemption of humanity, what Paul is saying here is that the plan of God through Jesus Christ is to take humanity and to restore it back to what it once was. Are you following me? Do you know how significant that is? It means that if Jesus Christ doesn't come into the world, then humanity is not what it was supposed to be. There was this ball player for the Los Angeles Dodgers. And 
And he had won the World Series with them in 1965, and then he had a drug addiction, and he eventually sold off his gear, including the, the World Series ring that he had gotten. And eventually he got clean and sober, and one of his greatest regrets in life was that this thing that he had, this thing that was so precious to him, he had, he had lost it. And he tried to buy it back, but he didn't have the money to do it. Eventually, years later, it, this is around 2000, it was put online in an auction. And the president of the Dodgers at the time knew about this man's desire to get his ring back, but his inability to do it. And so the president of the Dodgers at that time bought the ring online for, it was about $3,460, bought it back and gave it to the individual. He had done what? He had redeemed the thing. It had gone back to the way that it was. But what is God's plan of redemption? What is it? Church, I'm just gonna run you through something. I'm gonna end with this and I hope it's glorious to you as it is to me. When you think about God's redemption plan, God created all humanity to be his people. Genesis 1 tells us that, right? God created all of humanity to be his people, but humanity sinned and lived in rebellion against God. And so we who were made to be one thing are now eternally separated from him. This fracture exists. We're cut off from God. And so what is God looking to redeem us and bring us back to through Jesus Christ? We were made to be his people. We failed to be his people. We're cut off from him. But in Genesis 3, from the very beginning, the same chapter that says that we turned away from God, in the same chapter, God comes and he, and he says, I'm going to bring forth one one day. I'm going to bring forth one who, who comes from the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent, who's going to conquer. And every bad thing is going to be made right once again through this one that I'm going to come and I'm going to send. The moment we messed things up, God comes on the stage and he says, but I'm going to do something. I'm going to intercede. And so church, all of human history is moving towards this point where God is going to bring about and restore humanity back to himself as his people. But along the way, God does something. In Genesis 15, God calls Abraham this man who is just part of humanity, nothing special about him, nothing magical about him, God says, I'm gonna choose you, Abraham, I'm gonna choose you, and I'm gonna choose through your descendants, through your offspring, I'm gonna choose that you're gonna be my people and that through you, you're gonna produce one who will be the redeemer, the one who, he literally says, it's through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be what? Blessed. Do you know what offspring he was predicting at that moment? Thousands of years before he comes, he is referencing Jesus. God is never slow. God is never without purpose. And so God chooses Abraham, and he chooses the Jewish people, but he does not, and you need to hear this, he does not choose the Jewish people in exclusion to the rest of humanity. We, we talk about the Jews being the chosen people, and they are, but they were chosen for a purpose. That ultimately, through them, that God would bring about the Redeemer not just for the Jewish people, but for who? All humanity. Because every human being was created to be an image bearer of God. And so you don't understand what Jesus is doing until you understand, no, he had to come as a Jew because, because God says it's through this people that I'm gonna bring about the redemption of the lost. And so God gives the Jewish people, he gives them his law. Why does he give them his law? Because he's showing them how they are to live as a light 
to the nations around them. He gives them the land so that they're supposed to live in the land of, of Israel and say, this is what a land is supposed to, to look like where my people dwell. He doesn't just simply give them the land because he's like, you know what, you guys really deserve this thing. No, he's like, he's like I'm giving you my law and I'm giving you the land because people are to look at you and to be drawn to the God who has chosen you. And yet Israel failed to do that. God said, I'm going to bless you when you follow me, and there's going to be curses when you don't. So guess what happens? Why are the Romans currently occupying Israel at this time? Why are the people in the land worshiping in the temple, but they don't have the freedoms? It's because they had turned away from God, because God knew all along. God knew all along that it was never through obedience to the law that they would be saved. It was never through the sacrificial system that he set up in the temple would be the means of their salvation. The law and the sacrifices pointed the people from the beginning to the one who would have to come to be the perfect sacrifice, to be the perfect law keeper. And this is what Jesus is coming to do. When the fullness of time had come, God remembered. God had not forgotten, but the life of Jesus, as we're gonna see, is to show us that God is all about the redemption of humanity. Not just one group of people, but that through this one group of people, through the offspring of Abraham, you and I today could experience redemption. And so what does that mean for you today? If you know Jesus Christ, who Luke proclaims him to be, and who the entire New Testament to be, then today you are the redeemed. Yeah. You know what? I would like to hear more than one voice say that. Today, if you know Jesus Christ for who he is, you are the redeemed. Praise God. Praise God. Why do you say praise God? Because you are these new creations today. You, think about this, are the fulfillment of the plan of God. Look at your neighbor and say, I'm part of God's plan. Now, some of you are like, oh, that makes me feel awkward. It shouldn't. Because if you're in Jesus Christ, now you understand that God came to redeem a people. And yes, you are part of it. Does that make you special? In this sense, it does. In this sense, it does, because not because of what you've done, but because Christ is the fulfillment of God's plan. You can now have a relationship with him. You can be who you were created to be. And we're going to look at the life of Jesus. We're going to study the life of Jesus. We're going to hear the words of Jesus because Jesus is going to show us what it looks like to be the redeemed. Praise be to his name. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, sometimes, Lord, it feels like you're slow in what you are doing. Sometimes we look at the world and it's overwhelming. It feels like there's chaos at work. I have to think, because they were just like us, that the people in the time of Jesus' day are looking at things and they're saying, this isn't the way things are supposed to be. This is chaos. There's wars and there's fighting and there's empires rising and falling. And yet, that was not a surprise for you. Instead, all of it was working towards your purpose for the redemption of humanity through your son, Jesus Christ. And what that means for us today is that for those of us who are redeemed, we're not outside of your plan and purposes, but we're within your good and perfect purposes. That today we are people who know that our sins are forgiven. We're 
today a people who know that we can have relationship with you. We can talk to you. We can sing to you. We can hear from you because you have made it possible through Christ. So, Lord, help us, I pray by your Spirit, to know him more and more each day and help us to be bold in making him known because the reason for which he came was to bring glory to your name through the redemption of your people. Lord, we're not what we once were because of Jesus Christ. And so it's in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen.